Well, today we begin a short four-week series in the Beatitudes, those famous sayings of blessing, of, of blessedness that Jesus gave within his Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me to Matthew 5, if you would. It's the first book of the New Testament. It's about two-thirds the way through most Bibles, if you have one with you today. Matthew 5 through 7, those chapters contain Jesus' most famous sermon, his longest recorded sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins that famous sermon with eight pronouncements of blessing. He actually uses the phrase, blessed are, nine times here in the list. Uh, but one of them is an expansion of the one before, as we'll see. So eight pronouncements of blessing, eight ways to describe who is blessed and what a blessed life looks like. Do you wonder who really is blessed? Do you wonder what a blessed life would look like? You can't tell by looking to the people who say that they're blessed, as I said last Sunday, we were in Psalm 134 and we got to that word blessed. And so I remarked that blessed and blessings are words that are somewhat trivial in our culture, a bit nebulous and, and maybe overused in our culture. For many today, being blessed has nothing to do except for material possessions. For some, blessed means that things are just going fairly well. You might ask someone, how are you doing? And they'd say, eh, I'm blessed. It could be worse, but it's not so bad. I'm, th I'm thankful. The way some talk about being blessed, it means being advantaged, having an advantage. You might hear an NFL player after the game talk about being blessed, and by that he means his speed, his talent, his muscles, and the, the day he had out in the field. Some talk about being blessed with smarts. Some are thankful to be blessed with wealthy parents. Some might say that they're blessed to live in a country with relative wealth and privilege and opportunity. Some talk about being blessed with healthy kids or or even above average kids. Blessed is driving a Volvo with a sticker on the back that says, my kid is better than your kid. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. Well, Jesus takes the wisdom of the world and even the wisdom of the religious leaders of his own day, and he turns it all on its head. To here is where we look, to Jesus is where we go to find out what being blessed is all about. Don't go to Twitter or Facebook or, or new statistics or a survey or Dr. Phil. Here we find what's blessed. Jesus describes it for us. Eight pronouncements of blessing. We'll read all of them today, though we'll just focus on the first three for this Sunday. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now before we dig into specifics with our first three Beatitudes today, let me take several minutes to ask and answer the question of what are the Beatitudes. We'll do this from week to week as we study these verses together. We'll take a good bit of time this morning to get us started. First, that word, Beatitude, is from a Latin word which means a state of blessing or to be blessed. So Beatitudes are sayings of blessing. But to answer that question, what are the Beatitudes, we'll have to also define what it means to be blessed. And we'll define it according to what Jesus says here in this section of his teaching. But we can also remember other parts of scripture that describe that blessing. We did that a little bit last week. We thought about number six. This is a good definition for what it means to be blessed of the Lord. There, Aaron, the priest, gives his famous blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and be gracious to you. And then it says, so shall these priests put my name upon the people, the Lord says. That's what it means to be blessed. It means more than just being happy, though happy is somehow part of it. There's a reason that some English translations translate these words here, not blessed are, but happy are. If we rightly understand happy to be something more than just bubbly or giddy or with lots of laughs or a pocket full of sunshine or cotton candy in your brain or something, then, then the Bible speaks to this. You may have gotten hold of the idea that we Christians were somehow above happiness. That comes and that goes, and that's based on circumstances. That's what the world has. We have joy. Mm, there's something to that. There's also something to the fact that the Bible talks about something really close to happiness when it talks about delighting in the Lord and rejoicing. You may need to read Randy Elkhorn's new book on happiness, 500 pages. If you don't like to read, it's not very happy reading, I suppose, but he's gone to town on this topic of happiness according to the Bible, and it's very fruitful and encouraging. Yes, we can dismiss the world's flippant, um, giddy kind of happiness, but we shouldn't totally cut out of the picture of blessedness, that thing that happens when the ends of our mouths curl up. There's something to that in the Bible. Blessed in the Bible is simply shorthand for salvation in many places. It's the result of salvation. Salvation means to be forgiven, to be right with God and restored to him. And that's a blessing indeed. 
Think of all those New Testament blessings or promises that are ours by virtue of having come to Christ and he, the one that gives us all these blessings. They're ours, not least the hope of heaven. We're blessed on account of that. We're blessed, not cursed. Think of blessed as the opposite of cursing. The Old Testament prophets often began their oracles one of two ways, either woe to you, and then it would go on to curse wicked people, or blessed are, blessed be, and they would go on to bless some more. Jesus, being a prophet himself, he began some of his teachings by saying, woe, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. But he begins this sermon with the repetition of blessed. And when Jesus talks about being blessed here in this spot, he has all of what we've already said about being blessed from elsewhere in the Bible. But here there's this added significance or attachment to the kingdom of heaven. Notice how Matthew points us to this emphasis. Look at chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went through all Galilee. He's teaching in synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing. Well, chapter 9, go there. Chapter 9, verse 35, we see the exact same summary, giving us bookends about this whole section. There, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing so, of course, what Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes falls within us. It's him proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Did you notice that the first and last of the Beatitudes also strike this emphasis? They have the same promise. You know how each Beatitude has a promise at the end. And no two promises are the exact same except the first and the last. So chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the kingdom emphasis. And then chapter 5, verse 10, the last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is about the kingdom. Being blessed is being part of the kingdom of heaven. That is God's spiritual rule over his people by grace. It's the realm of God's rule and his worship. It's not a visible realm. It's a spiritual realm. It's a kingdom not of this world. At least not yet. One day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Christ, Revelation tells us. But, but not yet. And yet on a spiritual level, the kingdom of heaven has come. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's called the kingdom of God. Matthew uniquely calls it the kingdom of heaven. It's not two different things being talked about, though. Matthew writes to Jewish believers or, or Jewish audience, mostly. And you have to remember that in the days of Jesus, most Jews imagined God's kingdom to be only national and physical and geopolitical and visible. And Matthew's trying to get them to not go there, but instead think of a kingdom, not of this world, a kingdom of heaven. That kingdom is now, and it's not yet. It's present and its future. These 
These beatitudes have both present tense and future tense. Verse 3 and verse 10, there the promised blessing is present tense. Theirs is the kingdom now. And then verses 4 through 9, there the promised blessing is future. They shall be comforted. That doesn't mean that some are in the future and some are in the present. It's a melding of these ideas of now and not yet. It doesn't mean that God doesn't yet comfort Christians at all. It just means that God's greatest comfort still awaits. When it says theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't mean there's no future greater kingdom still to come. There is. But theirs is the kingdom now as well. It has come. It is coming. Jesus said, pray, your kingdom come. And it will come in all of its glorious fullness. The question is, are you in this kingdom? Are you of that realm? That's what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes. He's describing those who are in the kingdom. Jesus said elsewhere that people were pressing into the kingdom. Later in chapter 7, he'll say, strive to enter in by the narrow gate. He himself is the narrow gate. He's the only way. Those who have entered in by him, well, they look a certain way. They have a certain thing or things about them. Eight, to be specific. Not eight different kinds of people. That's important for us to note up front. It isn't talking about some people who are poor and some people who are persecuted. This is snapshots of God's people. It's what it's like as people are coming into the kingdom and as they're living it out in the kingdom. Many scholars have suggested that there's some distinction between the first half, the first four, and then the second half, the last four. They say that the first four are related to how we see ourselves, how we need to see ourselves, poor, mourning, meek, and thus, these, especially the first four, are applicable not only to those who are already in the kingdom, but also those who are beginning to enter in. And the last four flesh that out more. They're related more to how we relate to others. We're to be merciful. We're to be peacemakers and not surprised about persecution. Again, we'll look at the first three today. And what do those first three have in common? In each one, Jesus commends the lowly, the lowly. In the first one, Jesus commends the spiritually poor. That's verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, when he says blessed here, especially since he's talking about who's in the kingdom and who's not in the kingdom or of the kingdom, he's talking here about acceptance. Who's in with God? Who's accepted by him? Blessed here in Matthew 5 has all the connotations we've already referred to. Happy, saved, heaven bound, having God's face shine upon you, yes. But there's also the idea of acceptance here with this word blessed. It's not just a feeling to be blessed. It's not an emotion necessarily. It's something 
more objective than that. It's something even outside of us. It's like a heavenly declaration. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most um, influential preachers of the last century, he preached about 13 sermons on these eight Beatitudes. And throughout, he kept using the word congratulations to capture the meaning behind blessed. Congratulations, he says to the spiritually poor. God shows his favor, his approval, his acceptance, and he gives his congratulations to those who are spiritually poor. Not physically poor, necessarily. Not materially poor. Nor is it emotional poverty that he's talking about. He's not talking about those who have low self-esteem or low self-confidence. Jesus isn't saying that God loves the introverts and passive people and unambitious or even lazy people. That has nothing to do with spiritual poverty. To be spiritually poor means that you know yourself to be bankrupt, spiritually speaking, destitute. That's the word Jesus uses for poor here. Not mildly poor or kind of poor, but those who are destitute and helplessly poor. Physical poverty does provide a helpful illustration for our spiritual state. We're poor. Think of the destitute in Bible times. Those who maybe were crippled or blind and couldn't work in those days. They would have come to recognize their need. They would not at all be shy about their need for help. Remember blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10, who hears that Jesus is passing through town, and he begins to yell, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd says, Shh, shh, no, hush up. Can't you see? He's traveling through. He's talking to people. You're interrupting. And all the more, all the louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't care what others think. He's helpless. He's destitute. And spiritually speaking, we must come to Jesus like this, all of us. Or we don't come at all. This is counterintuitive to our natural way of thinking. This is utterly countercultural. Our culture prizes self reliance, self confidence, self esteem, inner strength. People brag about being a self made man, people say they make their own luck. It's not just an American culture thing that's rubbed off on some people. It's in us all from the very beginning. Not long after a child begins to speak, they eventually say, no, I do it on my own. That's the way our kids always did it. No, I do it myself. I do it on my own. And at first, that's cute. You might even admire their determination but eventually, it gets a little annoying. Sometimes it's not true. They can't do it on their own. You know they can't. They haven't learned to tie their shoes yet. And yet, despite their stubborn insistence on their ability to tie their own shoes, you're late again. 
Well, you hope they grow up and change. You wouldn't want them to be adults and everyone says, yeah, that guy is stubborn. He's proud. He's stupid. And when it comes to our spiritual life before God, it's even more hopeless and stupid to remain self-reliant and self-trusting, working our way to God. All of us were born away from God, going astray from God. That's the nature of sin. The nature of sin is being self-autonomous, an entity unto ourselves. The nature of sin at root is not just rule-breaking. God gave some arbitrary rules, and some of us do some, not all. We don't meet all the standards. We feel bad or don't feel bad when we break the rules. You know what's behind it all? It's what Frank Sinatra made as his life chorus. I did it my way. I was listening to Billy Joel again this week. He wasn't addressing God when he sang this line, but I thought, my, what a great description of sin this is. Sin is saying, I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. We express our spiritual autonomy either as relying on our own selves to appease God by working hard for him or by doing whatever the heck we want to to ignore God. We have to start by understanding the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is me. The problem in this world is not everybody else. It's not ultimately educational or political or social or psychological or your parents. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual problem, and we got to own that it's my spiritual problem. The problem is me. G.K. Chesterton was asked by the London Times to write an article on what's wrong with the world. He sent back to the editor three short lines. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world, Chesterton said. I am. He was a man who was poor in spirit. One way, as I said, of expressing our autonomy before God is to, is to give God the finger. I don't say that lightly. The other way is to come to him with something to offer. And this, I think, is actually more common. It's very rare to find someone who isn't, in some way, thinking they've done something for God or a God or a mystical power out there. Most of us, by nature, think that we do have something to offer God. We might not have as much as others, but we're not destitute. A survey done by George Barna not long ago concluded that 80% of Americans agree with this statement that the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. 80% of Americans 
believe that that's in the Bible. If you're here and you're one of those, you might be. That's fine. We should tell you it's not in the Bible. Not only that, it's contrary to the teaching of the Bible. According to the Bible, God actually helps those who know that they can't help themselves and will humbly admit it. The Bible says God will help those who give up on themselves, who cash themselves in in their spiritual bankruptcy, because only God can help. I came across something this week called the Wisdom of Sirach. About 200 B.C., this religious document was written. It probably represents well the thinking of Judaism in Jesus' time, just a couple hundred years later. See if this sounds similar to what Jesus says, and yet quite different. Sirach says, blessed is the man, see how that sounds like our passage, Blessed is the man who meditates on wisdom, who reasons intelligently, who pursues wisdom like a hunter. Sirach says, my soul takes pleasure in three things. Agreement between brothers, friendship between neighbors, and a wife and a husband who live in harmony. My soul hates three kinds of men. A beggar who's proud, a rich man who's a liar, and an adulterous old man who lacks good sense. It says, with nine thoughts I've gladdened my heart, and a tenth shall dwell on my tongue. A man rejoicing in his children. A man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Happy is he who lives with an intelligent wife. And he who has not made a slip with his tongue. And he who has not served a man who's inferior to himself. Happy is he who's gained a good sense and when he speaks has attentive listeners. Now some of that you can find elsewhere in the Bible. But the way it's put here in Sirach, the emphasis is on Physical blessings, number one, and physical blessings earned, number two. Sirach says, blessed is the man who works really hard to become wise. And blessed is the man who's just lucky enough to have certain blessings and opportunities like a, a smart wife and a good marriage and kids and, and honor in the community. Someone who speaks and isn't ignored and doesn't have to serve inferior people. That's Sirach. And then 200 years later, Jesus burst onto the scene and said something so radical and different. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Congratulations, spiritually destitute people. And he wasn't being sarcastic. Sigmund Freud said that religion is simply a crutch for the weak. Have you heard that before? I hope you know of a good answer for it because it's an easy one to respond to. The first thing I like to say when I hear that is what's so bad about a crutch? It wasn't long ago I had a broken ankle. I couldn't put weight on my foot. I didn't like the crutches. They made my armpits hurt. 
but I'd rather have crutches than not have crutches. I'd rather get around on crutches than lay in bed or, or, or wiggle my way on the floor. The other thing I would say to Freud, if I could, is that we're actually far worse off than just needing a crutch. A crutch won't do it for us. We don't have a broken foot. We have a broken soul, a broken everything. We don't need a crutch. We need resuscitation. We need new life. We don't need a little support under our arm to help us limp around in life. In fact, God doesn't even offer you a crutch. Do you know that? If you come to God and you say, hey, would you help me out? I got it mostly, but can you just give me a hand? Can you just give me a leg up? Can you just show me just a little bit of mercy? You actually get hell. It's that serious. It is that serious to think that you just need a little help. It's not just misguided. It's hellish and wicked. It's not blessed. Would you this morning, maybe for the first time, be willing to acknowledge before God and even feel the weight of your spiritual bankruptcy because of sin in this world and sin that you've committed? Would you be willing today for the first time to say with that old hymn that we Christians love to sing, it's not the labors of my hands that can fulfill the law's demands could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Save me, Savior, or I die. That's a helpless man who wrote that. He's a saved man. He's a blessed man. He's not only washed clean, he has the kingdom of God. He has the kingdom of heaven. Get this, the spiritually poor who have no claim on anything get the kingdom of heaven. They're in it. They're of it. God says the spiritually poor, congratulations, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Christian, have you forgotten that you're in the kingdom of heaven? You're of the kingdom of heaven. You will one day fully and finally and forever be in and of the kingdom of heaven. Have you forgotten, though, that it's only by grace? It's not any of your doing. Pre-Christian works or post-Christian works. Have you forgotten that you are, before God, still spiritually bankrupt in and of yourself? You don't graduate from the Beatitudes. It's not just a list of how we got in, but it's life within. Are you trusting in yourself? 
Have you started to sing a different version of that hymn, Rock of Ages? A little something in my hands I bring, mostly to the cross I cling. I'm not that naked and needing dress. I, I got stuff. I'm, I'm good. I need a little help. Christians can forget for a time their utter dependence upon God for righteousness. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I, I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see you got to see your spiritual poverty, that you might see Christ's glorious spiritual riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, this is the grace of God, that though Christ was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you might have his riches. The poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven. How? Jesus is willing to trade your defunct bankrupt, infinitely in debt checking account for his of infinite riches. He'll pay your debt and he'll give you all the blessings that come from his infinite spiritual riches if you'll just simply acknowledge that you are poor in spirit. Jesus commends the spiritually poor, secondly, and we can cruise more quickly through the second and third because they build upon one another. Jesus commends the mournful as well. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Can you see how this necessarily flows from the first one? Just as that first beatitude wasn't about poverty, but spiritual poverty. So the second one here isn't just about any kind of mourning, as if Jesus said, blessed are the sad or, or the, the, the mourners or, or the, uh, you know, the, the morose, the, the melancholy. No, he means those who mourn for their sin. Those who mourn for their sin are those who first saw their spiritual poverty and they feel the weight of their spiritual poverty and they express something of the feeling of the weight of spiritual poverty before God. They mourn before the Lord. It's one thing to admit that you've sinned and that you need help. It's another thing to feel it. And another still to express it. David said in Psalm 32, When I kept silent about my sin before the Lord, my bones wasted away. There was groaning within my body. But when I confessed my sin to the Lord, there was forgiveness. He confessed his sin to the Lord. He talked to the Lord about it. He took his guilt to the Lord. There is a kind of guilt that is miserable, and yet it doesn't ever turn to God. Judas Iscariot had this kind of guilt after betraying Jesus. He killed himself. He was so miserable with his sin and his guilt. But he didn't have the faith to mourn it to God and to bring it to God. 
How very different is that than the example of the tax collector in Luke 18 who's praying there at the wall, but he looks down. He's beating on his chest and only saying one thing, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner, it literally says, because there might as well be no others as far as he's concerned. He's only looking at himself, unlike the Pharisee down the way who's actually looking over at this tax collector and thanking God that he's not like that sinner. God has allowed him to give and and to do things and to to be right and, and to not sin. But he's trusting in his righteousness. And only one of them went home justified that day, the tax collector. The one who was physically rich, spiritually poor, beat on his chest and cried out with mourning that God would have mercy. Would you turn with me to Psalm 38? Turn back there. Psalm 38 is a familiar place in my Bible to me. I would say it's a favorite place to go except it's painful when I turn there. And yet I find myself turning there quite often when I need my mourning for sin to be stirred up. David prayed here, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Oh Lord, my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it's gone from me. Thankfully, David didn't stay in this mournful position. Look at verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Verse 21, do not forsake me, O Lord. Oh, my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is repentance and this is faith. It's painful. It's deeply personal. It's utterly hopeful, though. It's so good. It's so needed. It's so rare in our days. Oh, it is so easy for us to say sorry to God as if it's a stranger upon whose toes we've just accidentally stepped. Someone we just bumped into on the street. Sorry. May God give us grace. Because repentance is not just how we get in to the kingdom. It's also the tenor of the Christian life. It doesn't mean there's no joy. No, blessed, 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 blessed. But when we sin, at times there should be mourning. Again, how different our culture is. Our culture says, 
Blessed are the frivolous, the carefree, the giddy, the silly. Blessed is the one who forever gets to live like he's in an Adam Sandler movie. That's what our culture preaches. But Jesus says, no, blessed are those who mourn and they will be comforted. They will be comforted with God's comfort. This God, this God of all comfort, he's sometimes called. The God who counts our tossings upon the bed in the middle of the night. This God who puts our tears in a bottle. Not literally, but can't you see his care and his intimacy and his nearness in such a picture of one who captures our tears in a bottle. Drew read from us from Isaiah 61 about Jesus. He's the one whom the Lord sent to go and preach, release to the captives, to give comfort to those who mourn, to give a garment of praise and joy instead of one of mourning. He gives great comfort. Now, and how much more so when he comes back? How much more so in a new heaven and a new earth where he will have wiped every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more weeping, no more, no more death, no more sin, no more threat, no more worry. Oh, to be comforted like that. And one day we will if we mourn. Thirdly, Jesus commends the meek. Verse 5, he commends the meek. Blessed are the meek. Bobby Knight, the former coach of Indiana basketball fame, he once said, the meek shall inherit the earth perhaps, but they don't get many rebounds. Well, I don't think Jesus was against rebounds or even boxing out in the paint or something. So Bobby Knight must not understand what meekness is. Meekness isn't being mousy. It isn't being wishy-washy or, or weak. Meekness is a response to God's grace of a life lived out under control with gentleness and patience and deference and humility. It's not attached to a certain personality type. We know this because Numbers 12 tells us that Moses was the most meek man on the earth back then. Moses. He killed a guy once. Moses. He was pretty hot-headed. He threw things in anger more than most people in the Bible. He wasn't meek because it was just his personality. Moses understood God's grace. He knew his sin. He knew God's mercy. He also knew what God's calling on his life was for and why it was there. It was not because of anything in him. Reread his calling in Exodus 3. He knows he's got nothing to offer. He's got no right to represent God to the world. But God chooses to use him. He's humbled by it. He's a meek man, but not a weak man. And because he knew himself to be a sinner and he knew God's mercy to be greater than his sin and he knew that calling on his life to be not one he deserved at all, then he didn't need to defend himself. 
which is actually what comes right before that statement about him being the meekest man in the earth. It's a, a charge against him, a, a lot of complaints, lies, slander. He doesn't defend himself. He's meek. Jesus was meek. He is meek. He said in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. The ESV says lowly and hard. Others say meek. I'm gentle and meek. And you'll find rest for your souls. You can come in mournful, humble meekness to the meek Savior who welcomes all who find themselves weary, heavy laden, and ready to cash in with him to get his great rewards. Come. He doesn't call you to come and work and labor and strive. He calls you to come and get rest. Yes, he has a yoke. Of course he would. He wants to lead us. He wants us to go his way. But his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Just look at him. He's gentle. He's meek. Jesus knows meekness better than any of us do. He is the meekest man who ever walked this earth. He also knows mourning better than you and I do. Think of his mourning, not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. Think of his weeping in the garden before he, were, he was to bear the cross and bear the wrath of God for us. He wept and sweated as though drops of blood. The only beatitude that isn't really demonstrated by Jesus is the first one. He wasn't poor in spirit. He was rich in spirit. We're poor in spirit. He is utterly rich. Again, he will come and he will take your debt and give you all his riches if you're willing to get low. It's the only way in. Christian, we rest in him. We've come to the meek one. We're made to be like him. James 1 says we've received the word in meekness. We're to continue to do that. Receive the word in meekness. Be meek before the Lord and before others. Grow in meekness. Embrace the beauty of grace-wrought meekness of humility and gentleness and kindness and selflessness and deference and finding no reason to defend ourselves for our own sake. Know that this Jesus calls you to a view of yourself that is out of this world. The world says, blessed are the powerful, the manipulative, the vindictive, the monopolizing. Blessed are those who know how to throw their weight around. Blessed are those that don't take no for an answer. Blessed are those they get what they have worked so hard for. Some have a whole lot to prove 
for all of it. They are blessed, says the world. And Jesus Christ says, ha, because those poor, mourning, meek who come to me inherit the earth. The earth. Psalm 37 is probably in view here. There are three times it says they'll inherit the land. And once it says the meek will inherit the land. But there, the land is a patch in Palestine. Jesus takes it up a big old notch when he says, the meek shall inherit the earth. What does it even look like to inherit the earth? We don't know. What does it mean? I don't know. I know it's big. I know it's good. And I know that it's crazy. It's counterintuitive. The meek don't even get rebounds. And they get the earth. Yeah. They will. They'll rule and reign with Jesus forever. They'll sit on thrones with him in his kingdom. They will judge fallen angels. They'll get a place in heaven of rank somewhere between Jesus and non-fallen angels. What? And in the meantime, we get joy. We get blessing. We get a million promises. Here, Isaiah 29. The meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Today, Christian, you poor, mourning, meek, take fresh joy in the Lord. Congratulations. You're blessed. Father, we deserve none of this. We blush when we think that we get it. We blush to hear you say it. And yet we're also chastened, Lord. We recognize all the ways in which we're not very good at recognizing our spiritual poverty. We are all pretty aware of times when we sin. We don't even notice it. Or other times we sin and we're not concerned about it. Help us, Lord, to walk with you in righteousness and repentance. Give us faith, give us joy, give us perseverance. Help us to keep coming to Jesus. And we pray for those here in our midst who haven't yet come to him. Lord, would you give salve for their eyes so they can see themselves and see Jesus? And today, would they come, come to him who welcomes those who are weary and heavy loaded and those who want rest for their souls. Give us rest even now as we sing about our coming to Jesus. For your sake, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.